sermon this morning is entitled, A Tale of Two Thomases. John 20, verses 19 to 31. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst, and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you you remit, they are remitted unto them. Whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach hither your finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither your hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord, and my God. Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. Amen. And that is the word of God. When I was a child about 12 years old, my junior high school at the time took a few of us on a class trip to Washington, D.C. It was a fascinating trip that deepened my interest in politics and history. And while there, I bought, I purchased a cheap copy of the Declaration of Independence written by Thomas Jefferson. The one I bought was a ripoff at a souvenir shop in D.C., and certainly not worth the paper it was printed on. But in 1989, a man bought what he thought was a plain picture frame at a yard sale, and later, however, he found a hidden surprise. Inside was a rare copy of the Declaration of Independence. The man's $4 purchase turned into $2 million. And then separately, in 2006, a Nashville man paid less than $2.50 for what appeared to be, like mine, a copy of the Declaration of Independence. But this one was no ordinary copy. It was one of several that was com- actually commissioned by John Q. Adams. And the copy was later sold at an auction for close to half a million dollars. Now, every time I tell a story like that, I think about the seller. Poor guy. 
His inability to discern an authentic from the fake copy no doubt caused him to sell an unbelievably regrettable item. Our, our decisions regarding truth have consequences. It doesn't matter what they are. It could be eternal truths or truths, day-to-day truths. They have, be, have consequences. It was, in fact, Winston Churchill who once said, in wartime, truth is so precious that she should always be attended by a bodyguard of lies. Now, in our modern age, whether it's about war, medicinal progress, politics, the truth is getting harder and harder to discern. Yet discern we must. We must discern in order to decide. And after gathering the facts, we must make decisions, big weighty decisions, such as, should I vote for this presidential candidate? Should I get vaccinated? Or even, should we go to war? These are big decisions. The decisions we make regarding the truth have big, big consequences. And whether you're a believer or not, we all will make decisions regarding truth claims. And last Sunday, Christians all around the world celebrated the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And today, the scripture passage is sort of a post-resurrection reflection of sorts. Today's text forces us to ask two eternally significant questions. Was Jesus really God? And did the resurrection of Jesus actually occur? Big questions. The answer to both those questions is a resounding yes. But unless you actually believe it for yourself, you will not and cannot go to heaven. I, I am going to say that again because it is so vitally important. Unless you personally believe in Jesus Christ as God and in his resurrection, you cannot go to heaven. There are pulpits in America that today will say that the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is not an important doctrine to ne- needed for a person to be a Christian. In other words, you could believe in the moral teachings of Christ and not in his resurrection and still be a Christian. I'm going to say this clear. The bodily resurrection of Christ is the cornerstone belief for Christianity. And your eternity hinges on it. You don't have to confess whether or not you believe in it to me. I know. It's hard to believe that a man rose from the dead. But what scripture will tell us today is your eternity in heaven or hell will depend upon whether or not in your heart right now you truly believe that this man rose from the dead. That's huge. Of course, all of you are here today and it's not accidental. You will either today believe in the true value of Jesus and experience his reward in heaven, or you will believe lies about Jesus and cast him aside like useless junk in a yard sale. Which one will it be? One day in eternity, God might even remind you that he gave you a chance. He might even remind you 
that you heard the truths regarding the resurrection today in this sermon. And I'm only a messenger. The truths belong to God. And today's passage picks up on Easter Sunday. The reason why Christians have for 2,000 years assembled together for worship on Sundays is because our Lord resurrected on Sunday. In Jewish life, the Sabbath was Saturday. And Saturday was the seventh day of the week. The first day of the week, therefore, is Sunday. And Sunday was the historical day of Jesus' resurrection, as per verse 19 of today's text. Jesus was crucified on Friday. He rose from the dead on Sunday. The third day. This is, this is something that's not only historic, but it's theologically significant. Do not, therefore, let any Seventh-day Adventist tell you otherwise. It is absolute, pure heresy to insist that Christians keep the Saturday Sabbath. You might be sitting there going, wow, that's pretty bold. Why would you say something like that? Christians no longer observe the Sabbath because Christ is the eternal Sabbath rest fulfilled. Christians worship on Sundays because it is a weekly reminder of our Lord's resurrection. We find in the New Testament that Sundays became known to Christians as the Lord's Day. It's, it's in the New Testament. Both the New Testament and secular historians recorded Christians worshiping on Sundays. One example would be Roman governor Pliny, a source dating to late first century. He wrote in his now famous letter to Emperor Trajan that he observed Christians gathering together for worship early Sunday mornings for the worship of Jesus. And then we have testimonies like Justin Martyr, 150 A.D. Early church leader who wrote, quote, But Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly. Because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in darkness and matter, made the world. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day, rose from the dead. For he was crucified on the day before that of Saturn, Saturday, and on the day after that of Saturn, which is the day of the sun, having appeared to his apostles and disciples, he taught them these things, which we have submitted to you also for your consideration, end quote. And there you have it, well before the famous Council of Milan, 325, Christians were worshiping on Sunday. So don't let any heresy come and tell you that worshiping on Sunday was contrived as some church council. That's incorrect. According to Justin, dating all the way back to 150 AD, Jesus, after his resurrection, instructed his disciples to worship on the Lord's day. Now, of course, that's extra biblical material, but it's credible. Because even in the pages of the New Testament, we see the early church gathering on the Lord's Day, the Resurrection Day, to worship. So in a sense, every Sunday, I know we celebrated Easter last week, but every Sunday is like a little Easter for all of us. Deep theological reflection 
Because whenever we come to church on Sunday, we remind ourselves, this is the day our Lord resurrected historically, and therefore we are new creations. That's profound. By the 4th century, church leader Augustine would write that Christians are not to keep any Old Testament precept regarding circumcision, animal sacrifices, or even the Sabbath. Now, for some of you, that's revolutionary because you were taught always obey the Ten Commandments. But honor the Sabbath is the fourth commandment. Are we breaking one of the Ten Commandments by worshiping here today rather than yesterday? You ever thought about that? Here's what Augustine said. He wrote, It is certain then that Moses on the mount received the law that he might deliver it to the people. Written on tables of stone by the finger of God, it is summed up in these Ten Commandments in which there is no precept about circumcision nor anything concerning those animal sacrifices which have ceased to be offered by Christians. Well, now I would like to be told that, they, that there in, is in these Ten Commandments except the observance of the Sabbath which Christians ought not to keep. End quote. So in short, According to Augustine, Christians are continuing to keep nine out of the Ten Commandments in full force. The Fourth Commandment, the commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy, has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And you'll see this again in Paul's letter to Coloss- in, in his Colossian letter and in Romans. Now I know it's trendy, right? for some churches settling for Saturday night worship services or Wednesday midweek services so that it frees up Sunday so you could go hiking. But don't settle for this. There is deep historical, more importantly, theological truth, a reason for all of us being gathered here today to worship God on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the very cornerstone of Christianity. It's amazing that there is a heresy devoted to that one, debunking that one doctrine. The devil knows how important it is. The day of worship matters. Now, going back to the resurrection, and here's why it matters, because it forces us each Sunday to ask ourselves, Do we really believe in this resurrection? Because the Apostle Paul says, if Christ has not risen, you are yet in your sins. This is all a waste of time. So let's go back to the resurrection. In verse 20, the disciples see the resurrection Lord. To be clear, this was not a spiritual resurrection, as some liberal theologians would like to say it was. This was a bodily resurrection. Flesh and blood, he ate before them. A a body that, in verse 27, the Apostle Thomas could put forth his hands and touch. And just really quick, I would also like to add that Jesus resurrected as a male. And for all of eternity, he will be a male. So for all the 
gender dysphoria and the controversy out there, there is no gender reassignment in eternity. Be very comfortable with what God gave you because you will be that in the resurrection. The resurrection in verse 27, the apostle Thomas comes and he touches the man Jesus Christ. Easter Sunday, however, the disciple Thomas was not there when Jesus appeared to the 11. I should say the 10 because he wasn't there. When the disciples later tell him about Jesus' resurrection, verse 25 states that Thomas would not believe them. I love the gospel writers because they are very honest about their heroes. Here, here's one of the original 12 disciples, and John flat out tells us about his unbelief. There's no sugarcoating, just pure truth. And to be honest with you, it's a reasonable response. A man resurrecting from the dead, I would find that hard to believe if I was not a believer. So, here's the question. Was, was, was Thomas saved at that point? He had done three years of ministry with Jesus, walked with Jesus, ate the Last Supper with Jesus, and here he says, I will not believe in the resurrection. And so the answer is no. Thomas was not saved at this point. In fact, Thomas was not saved at all until verse 28. Verse 28 is Thomas's declaration of Jesus as God. And that is the moment of his salvation. This is a, an important piece of information for all of us, and this also reiterates the fact that doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. Again, don't let anyone fool you into thinking that as long as you have love, you have Christianity. Our love flows from correct doctrine. And according to the Bible, there are certain doctrines that if you don't believe, you will not inherit eternal life. Listen carefully. The text here is so critical because when Thomas declares Jesus as God, the text declares to us, it teaches us, by recording this passage, it teaches us that the deity of Jesus and his resurrection both have to be believed in order for a person to be a true Christian, to be born again, to be headed to heaven. And that's huge. Because again, you don't have to tell me, but go home and ask yourself, do you really believe that this Jew named Jesus rose again? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection is a critical component of the gospel. And what is the gospel? Every time I take this pulpit, I share the gospel with you because I don't know who's here. This might be your first time. It might be your last time you hear this. Listen clearly to the gospel. Number one, there is a God who is just, holy, and love. He is a God of righteousness. Number two, 
All sinners, all of us, all human beings since Adam and Eve are sinners. And so as such, we deserve hell. Because sins committed against an infinitely holy God deserve infinite punishment in hell. There's only one of two places after you die, heaven or hell. There is no purgatory. Only one of two places. The bad news is because we're sinners, we're headed to hell. Because God is a God of love, however, he's also a God of justice. But the good news is this, that on the cross of Christ, God's justice and God's love had a divine collision. Because God so loved the world, he gave his only son, Jesus, who was fully God and fully man. He lived a sinless life. And then he died on the cross to pay for the sins of all who would believe in him. Historically, after dying for our sins on the cross, he resurrected from the grave on the third day. It's not a myth. But point number four, you must personally repent and believe in Jesus as your Lord, your God, and your Savior in order to have eternal life. Do you believe in that gospel today? You could have been in church your entire life, and perhaps today, like Thomas, Thomas walked with Jesus, lived with Jesus, and it wasn't until verse 28, his eyes were opened and he believed. Today might be your day of salvation. If you hear the gospel today and you believe, today you are born again. Today you are saved. But before I move on, turn your attention to verse 23. I want to make clear that Jesus, in verse 23, is not giving any disciple or any church or any organization the power to forgive sins. This, task, this passage, this, this particular text, is often abused. Prominently by the Catholic Church, in saying that priests have the power to forgive sins. I want to make this clear. No one has the power to forgive sins except for God. We have one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Jesus Christ. You are to pray directly to Jesus, not to a priest, not to Mary, directly to your Savior, Jesus Christ. He alone can forgive sins. Amen? Amen. And it is, it is in this passage here, misused by the Catholic Church, and they tout this verse as a verse for their priest. Their, 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 their entire institution of the priesthood. No human, no pastor, no priest has the power to forgive another human of their sins. Only God can forgive sins. Then what is going on? The expressions here in verse 23 are Greek present perfect tense verbs. And they could also be translated in this way. They have been forgiven and it has been withheld. What does that all mean? You don't need a doctor for any of this. Let me just explain this to you. The perfect tense gives the sense of completed past action with continuing results in the present. The idea here is not that any individual Christian or pastor or church has the authority to forgive sins, but rather that as Christians proclaim the gospel message that I just shared with you, I'm nobody. I just... I'm a messenger, just as all of you are. 
Those who believe in Jesus as a result of that proclamation have their sins forgiven. And those who do not believe, you can authoritatively declare to them that because of their unbelief, their sins are not remitted. In other words, all of it simply reflects on what God has already done. It has nothing to do with human agency. So you have the authority to forgive sins. How? By proclaiming the gospel. And when they believe in the gospel, you declare to them, your sins are forgiven. You have the authority to remit sins. How? That when they don't believe in the gospel, you proclaim, you can authoritatively tell them that their sins are not forgiven. Not because they've offended you, but because they don't believe in the gospel of God. Amen? Now let's move on to verse 28. Verse 28 is one of the clearest declarations in the entire Bible regarding the divinity of Christ. You ever notice that all the heresies in the world love to attack the divinity of Christ? The Muslims say that Jesus was not God. He was just a prophet. Right? Jehovah Witnesses say that he was the angel Michael turned into Jesus, but not God. The Mormons have the strangest of all. I don't have time for that, but certainly he's not God the Father. He's one of his sons, which we all could assume deity after we die. But the heresies of this world love to attack the deity of Christ. Why? Because if you don't believe that Jesus was God, you're not going to heaven. The devil knows that, and the devil is in the details. We could have one big kumbaya session and love each other, but that doesn't mean we're all going to heaven. Thomas's point-blank declaration gives fits to heretics because you can't get around that. In the Greek, he flat out, this Jew calls a human theos. He calls him God. And no Jew would ever do that. That's blasphemy. Jesus, and what does Jesus do? Jesus accepts his worship. In fact, Jesus not only accepts his worship, but he goes further and states in verse 29, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Wow, what a declaration this is. What a declaration. We are more blessed this morning because we have not seen Jesus, but yet we believe having never seen. In other words, we worship Christ because, because we see the true value of Jesus instead of erroneously throwing him into a yard sale trash heap that we will regret later, poor seller. We see the value, yet we never saw Christ. We cherish having never experienced communion on an earthly level, the way Thomas did. See, the Apostle John, who wrote this gospel, saw Jesus as God. And what was the end result? What's the end result for all of you? If you leave here today going, okay, I believe Jesus is God, there ought to be an action. What is that action, Pastor? Evangelism. Evangelism. Do you really believe in a literal hell 
and a Savior who is God if you don't tell anyone about how to be saved from his wrath. You see, read verse 31. Listen to what John writes. But these are written, in other words, John believes that Jesus is God, and so therefore he went about writing. These are written that you too might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. John's desire, no, God's desire, is that all of you within the sound of my voice would hear and believe in Jesus and thus have eternal life. And if you're already a believer in Christ, then read verse 21. God has a job for you. You can't just twiddle your fingers here through earth and and, and go on with this truth. There is a job for you. He has a mission for you. As God the Father has sent Jesus, even so, now Jesus sends all of you to tell this world about Jesus Christ, the God who died for man. Will you go? Will you go? Maybe a, a corollary question. If you don't go, do you really believe that Jesus was God and is God? It's worth thinking about. Because if we're not going, why are we not going? If there really is a fire in the room next door about to wipe us out, why am I not telling everyone to evacuate the building? But I started this sermon by saying that it's entitled The Tale of Two Thomases. If you recall, I opened this sermon with Thomas, but I'll close today with another Thomas, Thomas Jefferson. Because God graciously opened Thomas's eyes. Thomas Jefferson, on the other hand, did not end his life with similar faith. Thomas Jefferson called himself a Christian, but he only believed in the moral teachings of Jesus. His biggest hang-up, he did not believe that Jesus was God. Jefferson did not believe in the deity of Christ, and he also did not believe that the New Testament authors were accurate in their transmission of the pure doctrines of Christ. So Jefferson rejected the Trinity and believed that the Apostle Paul was guilty of corrupting Jesus' teachings. And in 1820, in a letter to William Short, Jefferson wrote that he found in the New Testament, um, quote here, Groundwork of vulgar ignorance, of things impossible, of superstitions, fantasisms, and fabrications, end quote. That was Jefferson. Howbeit, don't get alarmed. Many of our revisionist historians today are wrong because many of our founding fathers of this nation were strong believers in Christ. They believed in the divinity of Christ. Jefferson was rather quiet about his unbelief. And it was only after leaving public office that he secretly put together what is now known as the Jefferson Bible. The Jefferson Bible is on display at the Smithsonian, if you ever want to go see it. And what he did was, while he was in office at night, he quietly took the four Gospels of the New Testament and he cut and pasted only those parts that he believed were authentic. And then he came, he, at the end, he, he had a book that he created of all, the, all of those clippings. It's now known as the Jefferson Bible. 
as you can imagine, is rather quite thin. If you read it, you will not find accounts of Jesus walking on water. It's not there. You will not find anything about him feeding 5,000. That's not there. And most importantly, as a result of his attempt to shrink down the Bible to only the morals of Jesus, Jefferson denied the foundational truth of Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is not in the Jefferson Bible. You will not find a single word about Jesus' resurrection. Yet today, in a different book, in verse 31, John wrote, But these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you might have life in his name. Without the resurrection, Jesus is not God. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. This morning, I want you to understand this. Without the resurrection, there is no heaven for any of us. We are still in our sins. So I ask you this question, will you believe John's Bible or Jefferson's Bible? You don't have to answer that question. It's between you and God. But remember, your eternity hinges on this. Your decisions regarding truth will have eternal consequences. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your holy word.